0: From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, and this is a podcast about South Carolina culture and history, with a nod to all things Southern. I'll be joined today by my producer and co host, Alfred Turner.
1: And our guest today is Peter Cousins, an international award-winning author and editor of 18 books on the American Civil War and the American West.
0: In his latest book, A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and the Epic War for the American South, Peter Cousins vividly captures the young Andrew Jackson, describing a brilliant but harsh military commander with unbridled ambition, a taste for cruelty, and a fraught sense of honor and duty. Jackson would not have won the Creek War without the help of Native American allies. Yet he denied their role and even insisted on their displacement, together with all of the Indians of the American South, in the Trail of Tears. With me on the line today is Peter Cousins, and we're talking to him from his home in Kensington, Maryland. And we'll be talking primarily about his latest book, the latest of 18 books that he's written or edited, entitled, A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, the Creek Indians, and the Epic War for the American South. So with that introduction, Peter, welcome to the journal.
2: Thank you so much for hosting me.
0: And before we get into the book, I'd just like to talk about your career a little bit. I I find your career interesting. Peter's a graduate of Knox College in Illinois, And then he went in the Army. He had an ROTC scholarship and a four-year obligation. And after that, he went into the Foreign Service. And Peter, how about recapping a little bit of your Foreign Service experience? You seem to be in every hot spot in Latin America.
2: I spent um, 20 of my 30-year career uh, overseas in Latin America, in Peru during the uh, the days of Shiny Path terrorism. In Panama, when we turned the canal over to the Panamanians, uh, in Costa Rica, uh, two tours in Mexico, um, Honduras desk officer during the Contra era, which really dates me, I guess. But like most FSOs, I, I devoted myself principally to one region of the world and don't regret it at all.
1: Okay. And Peter, you have a guest I hear in the background. <laughs>
2: oh my gosh, you can hear him all the way from downstairs. Yeah, that's my uh my my loud but
1: friendly labrador retriever, <laughs> which is quite fine. I just wanted to make note of it.
0: <laughs> okay. And and when you retired, you decided to devote yourself full-time to writing, although you had been writing primarily about the Civil War while you were still in the foreign service, right?
2: That's correct. That's correct. I sort of had Two careers in tandem, and but uh, after my first book was published when I was 32, I really I recognized that my, my true my true vocation was writing, and uh, so I retired uh, the the instant I was uh, eligible and and uh, turned to writing full time and have not regretted it one moment.
0: All right, you you move from the Civil War to. Uh, writing about Native Americans, and this book is really the third of a trilogy that you have written about the new United States and its westward expansion, and the impact that that had on Native American peoples—the Midwest, the Far West, and now the Deep South. What, what made you turn from the Civil War to Native Americans?
2: Well, I, you know, initially I uh, thought in terms of just say a a standalone book on the Indian wars with the American West, you know, those of course, being the conflicts that popular culture most associates with, with, with our expansion as a nation. I, I wrote that because I felt that, uh, you know, 40 years had passed since D Brown wrote Mary heart at Knee, And I thought there was a real need for a, a more balanced account of, of what occurred in the West. And, and so I, 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 I wrote The Earth is Weeping, which which I, which I believe succeeded in its objective. It's been, uh, been translated into a number of languages, including Russian and Chinese. And once I finished that book, I, I realized that uh, there was so much more to the story that the really critical conflicts between the young American Republic and American Indians occurred east of the Mississippi. And really their resolution made uh, the, the conquest of the tribes in the West, pretty much a uh, fait accompli.
0: Let's turn to the South and and set the background. The first European impact was De Soto, of course, uh, in the 16th century. And he did two things. One was the great confrontation in what's now Alabama, the Battle of Mobilia or Movilla depending upon how you spell it, and, of course, the disease that he brought. Uh, but you make a number of comparisons between DeSoto and his dealings with the Native Americans and Andrew Jackson in terms of personality.
2: Right. You know, what struck me in, in terms of their similarities was uh, just how single-minded they were in, in, in achieving their ob- objectives. In DeSoto's case, it was his uh, rather quixotic... Quest for gold and riches in the American South, and uh, a concomitant brutal treatment of any Native inhabitants that stood in the way of his objectives. And in Jackson's case, it was it was his relentless, single-minded perseverance in pro- in uh, prosecuting the war against the the Red Sticks, as the hostile Creek Indians were called, uh, to its conclusion, even after. Uh, everyone else from the the administration of President James Madison, which was busy fighting the British in the War of eighteen twelve, to the governor of his own state of Tennessee, uh, wanted to kind of give things up and, and uh, concede the game to the uh, to the Greeks. He, he pursued his course uh, with a single mindedness uh, that uh, is, if not unique in American history, certainly I, there are very few of any characters so so. Influence such a critical chapter in our history as did Andrew Jackson in in, uh, in achieving victory in the Creek War, which which led then to the uh, displacement of the Indians from the American South, um, West Mississippi, and the Trail of Tears. It hadn't been for Jackson's single minded determination to, to to prosecute this war to a conclusion. The uh, Deep South might never have come about, as we know it, or certainly not for a number of generations.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about who were the Creeks. E- explain that to our, our listeners. Um, sure.
2: The, the, the book begins, as you mentioned, with uh, De Soto's march through the Deep South in the mid-1600s. And, and I spent a good deal of time um, on the development of the Creeks. Creek people and their culture and, and their interactions with the British and French and Spaniards and, and ultimately the Americans after the revolution. But the, the bulk of the narrative and the real action begins at the turn of the uh, 19th century, uh, just preceding the War of 1812. And at, at that time, the American South, as we know, it did not exist. The Creek Indians were a, a loose confederation of largely autonomous villages that claimed as their domain all of modern Alabama, as well as the western half and the southern portion of Georgia. So they they controlled a huge swath of what is today the Deep South. And the other three major tribes in the south were the Cherokee, who, who controlled a good portion of northern Georgia, as well as southeastern Tennessee and western North Carolina, and then there were the uh, Chickasaw and Choctaw Indians who pretty much split the northern two thirds of Mississippi between them. So the, the Deep South as we know it was was largely in uh, native hands at the turn of the 19th century. And the Creeks numbering about 25,000 were, were the dominant people among those four Indian nations in terms of both the amount of land they claimed and uh, their numbers.
0: The Creeks although there were, as you mentioned they were autonomous villages some of the Creeks uh, had begun to westernize they had begun to intermarry with Europeans creating a half caste a Matiso. and there were those who were talking about tribal purity so there is a creek war with Andrew Jackson but before that there's a civil war within the Creek nation is there not
2: That's right the the Creeks were known as the Muskogees, and that is that—that's what they called themselves then, based on the shared Muscogee language. But they were known to to uh, to the British and then the Americans as Creeks because the first the first British traders who met them found them residing on creeks or rivers and began calling them Creeks. But the the Creek people divided into what were known as the Upper Creek and the Lower Creek, and that depended on their location. With respect to the principal uh, trading route into the Creek country, those living to the north and west were the Upper Creeks; those to the south and east were the Lower Creeks. And it was the Lower Creeks, in a, in a nutshell, who, living closer to whites, living closer to uh, Georgia settlers and to traders, and, and more prone to intermarriage, they began to accommodate, assimilate some aspects of of, of white culture, agriculture. Uh, things of that nature, while the Upper Creeks, being farther removed from the whites and more suspicious of of American intentions at encroaching on their land, maintained uh, traditional values, the tensions between the Upper and Lower Creeks burst into a civil war in 1812, almost concurrent with the outbreak of the War of 1812, and the Upper Creeks, who Fomented the Civil War, called themselves the Red Sticks after the traditional red clubs they carried, and they were led by prophets who who believed that they could return all of the Creek Confederacy to a to a pure, more traditional Creek way of life, uh, impervious to American influence.
0: So, in essence, this was a nineteenth-century cultural war. Um-
2: exactly. Exactly. It was. It was the um, started as the the most brutal internecine war within one Indian nation. All, all, all Indian tribes and nations tended to split uh, throughout history between those who sought accommodation with, with the Western American Republic and those who advocated resistance. But nowhere was it more profoundly violent than, than in the Creek Nation.
0: Weren't a number of the leading figures in among the Lower Creeks mixed caste
2: not only among the Lower Creeks, but among the Red Sticks as well. You had, for instance, the, the principal prophet of the Red Sticks was a fellow named Josiah Francis. Their principal military leaders were uh, Patty Walsh and William Weatherford. I mean, these are hardly hardly typical indie names. And that came about, again, because of this intermarriage of of uh, British, first British and then during the revolution, Tories who intermarried with Creek women from prominent clans, and this was a matrilineal society. So if you were a male born of a, a Creek uh, woman and a, and a white man, you took on the, the surname of your father, but you found your place in Creek society based on your mother's ties. And the, the uh, mixed race element of the Creek, both the upper and lower Creeks, by the early 19th century, had had achieved uh, achieved dominance uh, over Creek political uh, life.
1: So, Peter, you, you're talking about this conflict between these two groups with opposing views among the Creeks as being particularly explosive, particularly big and violent, as opposed to things that had happened, divisions that had happened amongst other Indian tribes and nations. Is there any way to account? for why this one was particularly big and bad
2: i i think it was the the um influence of the of the prophets among the the red sticks who really who argued that that if not physically extirpate they had to bring the lower creeks uh completely to heel in order to to achieve their objective of cleansing Creek society and returning it again to a more pure form, whereas with most other tribes, um, there was a tendency for, for elements of tribes to kind of go their own way, but peaceably between, you know, uh, factions with respect to either accommodation or resisting the whites. It, it seldom led to conflict between the factions themselves.
1: So prophets, um, we, I want to understand that word in the context that the Creeks might have understood it in the time. You know, we think 21st century, we look back on 2,000 years of Christianity, more of oh. Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. But these were people who had a religious power, or did they have political power too?
2: It was a religious power, but uh, among among the, the Indians, uh, particularly those living east of the Mississippi River, uh, there was a, a real strong tradition uh, of belief in prophets, that is to say, individuals who... Were held to have direct connection with the with the uh, master of life, you know, with God, and um, who exercise influence through this divine connection that people recognize, and they really exercise as much authority and influence in, in, in many cases as, as did political and military leaders, and they could they could steer the course of, a, of an Indian society. So, th- there was this deep tradition. Um, and the tribes, both in the south and the uh, the modern midwest of of uh, of um, yielding to the dictates of of recognized prophets hmm.
0: And this Creek Civil War in eighteen twelve soon involved the western frontier in Alabama, southern Alabama. European settlement had been there for a long time, but Fort Mims, which is in present day. Southeastern Alabama was a strong point, and the attack on Fort Mims, the massacre at Fort Mims, is what brought Andrew Jackson into the conflict.
2: You know, what happened in a nutshell was in what's called it was called the Tensaw region, a district about fifty miles north of Mobile, had become settled by mixed mixed race you know, Métis Creeks who. Didn't want to be part of the Creek Confederacy anymore. They wanted to go their own way and, and become small plantation owners. And uh, they welcomed whites into their midst. And say you had this pocket uh, on the on the western edge of the Upper Creek country of kind of recalcitrant people who still, you know, by virtue of the Matrilineal Society, were Creek uh, and. the the upper Creeks believed them to be subject to their jurisdiction who were welcoming whites into their midst and rejecting the, the upper Creeks and subsequently rejecting the red sticks. And uh, they became a thorn in the side of the red sticks and the red sticks made their first move to eliminate that pocket of, uh, of, of resistance in their midst. Uh, And the, the strongest point was Fort Mims, which was one of a number of, of uh, hastily built stockades that, uh, You know, held both Mississippi territorial militia and men, women, and children uh, of mixed race uh, and white uh, heritage, as well as their black slaves, and that that the red sticks attacked Fort Mims on August 30th, 1813, perpetrated the worst massacre of of women and children uh, by uh, Native Americans in uh, U.S. history, and uh, that. That sparked a larger war with the United States and caused the uh, state of Tennessee the, uh, and Georgia and uh, what was then the Mississippi territory to fear for their very existence, fear that the, the Red Sticks intended to take the war to them as well, which the Red Sticks boasted of doing. And that's how, that's how the war became uh, a conflict between the, the Red Sticks and the United States. The administration of James Madison, as important as this was, I mean, the future of the Deep South was at stake here. They were so preoccupied with fighting the British in Canada and New York, and heck, on Chesapeake Bay itself uh, near Washington, that they didn't pay a lot of attention to the conflict, and it was it was it was fought by the territorial state militia and volunteers.
0: Well, having grown up on the Gulf Coast, Fort Mims was part of our, our local history, and and the defense at Fort Mims was pretty slack. The gates had been left open for a long time, and sand had washed up against the gates. So when the Indians attacked, they couldn't close the gates to the fort.
2: And the, the, the Fort Mims had a commander who uh, was an alcoholic, who didn't really give a damn uh, much what happened, and actually uh, had sort of— um, almost suicidal tendencies. Yeah, he was a depressive sort and uh, really didn't much care, and uh, the garrison paid the price.
0: You describe what happened. Probably 250 to 300 people in the fort were killed, and as you mentioned, it was not just whites. In fact, the settlement creek, so to speak, was the largest group of, of, of folks that were killed, and also enslaved persons. So that's what, as you mentioned, that's what brought Andrew Jackson into the picture. Why don't you take up the story there? Because before his great victory at Horseshoe Bend, he had mixed results in waging war in Alabama and Florida, what we now call Alabama and Florida.
2: Well, when the the Creek War began, it was pretty much left to the, the Mississippi Territory, Georgia, and Tennessee to to conduct the uh, conflict. And because the Mississippi, uh, Georgia, and Tennessee all lay on the, on the periphery of, of the uh, Creek Confederacy, they couldn't communicate well among themselves. And they, they all went at it uh, independently. There were two expeditions launched from Mississippi territory between the fall of 1813 into the winter of 1814 that failed to permanently occupy any, any land in the rustic country and ultimately withdrew. Two expeditions from Georgia that um, achieved limited success but were forced to withdraw also because of uh, supply problems and, and short-term enlistments. And uh, Andrew Jackson, at the time the war broke out, he was commander of the West Tennessee Militia, and he was given principal command of the Tennessee forces that uh, invaded the red stick country from the north. And he launched uh, two offensives in, in 1813, both of which achieved achieve some, some victory on the battlefield. But again, he was unable to, to hold uh, much more than just a supply depot on the uh, northern fringes of, of the red stick country in Alabama. And by the beginning of 1814, the war had pretty much petered out. Mississippi Territory and Georgia were were kind of willing to concede the game. Even the governor of Tennessee was was suggesting that Jackson give it up and come home because it was evident that the Red Sticks did not really pose the threat to Tennessee's territorial integrity. Most of Jackson's men went home at the expiration of their enlistments. But Jackson, with a, with a handful of followers, you know, held on to their grip uh, on the northern fringes of, um, of Alabama of the Red Stick territory until finally Jackson was reinforced in the early spring of 1814 with a large enough force uh, and reliable enough supplies to make a, a, a really credible invasion of the Red Stick country which he did in March with uh, just over 3,000 men. And, and that uh, led to the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which was the decisive battle in the Creek War and, and really brought the Red Sticks to heel and uh, allowed the United States to achieve victory over the Red Sticks and, and uh, eventually you know, gain control of, of, uh, of Alabama and Western Georgia over the next 20 or so years and made the Trail of Tears inevitable.
0: Well, when Jackson started out, he was physically ill. Was he not?
2: <laughs> he was in bad shape. Jackson, uh, when when news of Fort Mims reached Nashville, Jackson was lying in bed in in, a, in an inn in Nashville, uh, on on really on death's doorstep. He had become involved in a, in a ridiculous duel involving the younger brother of uh, his principal subordinate in the, in the militia. Uh, who was Thomas Hart Benton, the future Missouri senator? And Jackson and a couple of his friends and the the Benton brothers got into a uh, a shooting match as a consequence of this duel. And Jackson was severely wounded in the shoulder, right shoulder and arm, and could barely get to his feet when he he started uh, started off against the creeks and in in, uh, in eighteen thirteen. He uh, had to have help putting his coat on. He, he suffered from a superating wound, from a chronic diarrhea. He was in he was in terrible shape, but again, he had the strength of will and determination to take the field. Nevertheless,
1: so back to Horseshoe Bend for a second because it's eighteen fourteen, and he pretty much annihilated uh, the the stronghold of Red Stick uh, people there. Right, uh, eight hundred or plus people. Yeah, the
2: Red Sticks. Uh, During the the course of the conflict, they gradually broke into three major groups, each of which had an enclave to which they could retreat if necessary. Horseshoe Bend was a name given to a peninsula in the Tallapoosa River Mm -hmm. in in, um, uh, central Alabama, and it it was an enclave to about a thousand Red Stick warriors and their families, and they were the only group of red sticks who had not really been bloodied at all uh, when Andrew Jackson marched against them in, in, in March 1814. They were uh, lodged behind a, a incredibly strong pine log barricade in this bend of the, of the Tallapoosa River, pretty much impregnable barricade. Andrew Jackson decided to to attack front on while simultaneously sending his cavalry together with about 600 Cherokee allies downriver, across the river, take up positions on the far side of the Tallapoosa River so that after he succeeded in breaching the, the barricade, uh, any Red Sticks who tried to flee across the river would be cut down by the, uh, by the Cherokees and by his cavalry. That was, that was Jackson's battle plan, at least for eliminating this final great Red Stick stronghold.
1: I have to say, hearing that he had 600 Cherokee as his allies, I find that dripping with irony considering what happened later.
2: Absolutely. Uh, it was the, Creeks, the Red Six misfortune that the Creeks in general did not get along particularly well with their Cherokee, Chickasaw, or Choctaw, Choctaw neighbors. They had periodically waged war against these tribes. and. Um, these three other tribes really thought it in their best interest to uh, take the side of the United States when the Creek War broke out. So the the Red Sticks, uh, pretty much uh, the 4,500 or so Red Stick Warriors, despite the fact that they controlled most of Alabama, they pretty much had to go to, alone against the combined forces of the, you know, the states of Georgia and Tennessee and Mississippi territory, as well as the their Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, and Lower Creek allies. Uh, So it was ironic, it was indeed.
0: And when we talk about the Red Stick defensive position, it was a log fort, and Andrew Jackson at first thought, his little, he had two small cannon, Uh, one was a two pounder, which is like a BB gun, but I mean, he had a larger one, but the shot just bounced off. But what- yeah, it wasn't it
2: wasn't a, a fort. It was, rather, it was it was a, a line of breastworks, a long you know, palisade that stretched across the mouth of this peninsula on the on the Talapusa River. Behind which there were again a thousand rich, uh, red stick warriors, and then further back on the banks of tallapoosa was their village in which the women and children resided. And um, and Jackson, you know, believed that his artillery would be sufficient to. Uh, to breach that barricade. Unfortunately, it wasn't. His his cannon fired away for a couple hours without making scarcely a dent in the palisade. And this is a grand irony in that his victory at Horseshoe Bend, his defeat of the Red Sticks, was due not so much to his generalship as to the initiative of a few Cherokee warriors who decided on their own to uh, swim across the Tallapoosa, grab some red-stick canoes that were on the bank by their village and row back across and, and seize the, the uh, red-stick village of uh, Tahopica, to- it was called, and uh, it was cre- the, the Cherokee seizure of the village that caused a lot of the, the red-stick warriors to abandon the barricade and fall back to defend their families, and, and that so, so weakened the, the, uh, the strength of the Palisade that Jackson was able to launch a frontal attack and, and and successfully reach the barricade and and defeat the red sticks it had not been for the creeks taking i'm sorry the cherokees taking the initiative in, in uh, crossing the river and taking the village Jackson i think would have would have been defeated at horseshoe bend uh, and forced to retreat
0: and what happened there it was a battle but it turned into uh, a massacre as uh, the red sticks were fleeing those who jumped into the river trying to swim to the other side were picked off but the the count of the red sticks killed was 577 you know this is this is part of the of the story too and that violence was not always one way uh red to white uh no it it by no
2: means by no means at all um Uh, white settlers and, and uh, volunteers and Englishmen were guilty of, of atrocities just, just as great, if not greater, than those perpetrated by Na- Native Americans. And um, Native Americans, uh, again, fought uh, de- fought defensively to protect their lands. They, and they, they did not initiate wars of conquest by any means. You know, Horseshoe Bend just stands out. It was uh, in a number of ways. I mean, it effectively brought an end to the Creek War. It represented the largest loss of life of, of, of Indian warriors in any battle during the hundred years of conflict between the, the you know, Western American Republic and uh, native inhabitants of the United States. Hmm. It also was a battle that brought Andrew Jackson to national prominence. It was Horseshoe Bend, and not, not, uh, not the Battle of New Orleans, that made, that made uh, Jackson a uh, household name because of his victory at Horseshoe Bend, he was given a major generalship in the regular army and command of the military department that uh, took on the British when they did finally uh, invade the Gulf Coast region, and that culminated in the Battle of New Orleans. And so, the Hors- victory at Horseshoe Bend set set in motion two things: Andrew Jackson's uh, uh, march to the White House, and uh, ultimately the uh, dispossession of Indian lands. Because after Horseshoe the Red Sticks were unable to, to mount effective resistance any further. And there was no other you know, Indian people in the South able to resist uh, the Americans. And again, there was a, there was a, a slow but inexorable usurpation of, of Indian lands in the South, and uh, uh, which ultimately led to the uh, to the growth of the Cotton Kingdom in the Deep South, and that which in turn led to the American Civil War. So it was an extraordinarily Crucial moment in our in our early history. It,
0: it absolutely was, and not all of the Creeks were dispossessed. There's still a small group in Alabama in Conecuh County that uh, managed to to hide out, and they are a federally recognized tribe still. Peter Alfred's giving me the wind up sign, which I I don't always like. I sometimes <laughs> fuss at him because I, there are a lot of things I would like I would like to cover. As a historian and also as a, a native Mobilean, your characterization of the importance of the Creek War is something that people really need to take into account. And yeah, it was.
2: I, I consider it ha- after having written these three books, um, uh, I consider it to be the most significant uh, conflict between uh, American Indians and uh, the United States. Um, you know, in the hundred years of conflict between the revo- end of the revolution and the, uh, the the closing of the frontier, I mean, yeah. it was the most yeah. consequential. Okay. It created the deep South and created the conditions for for slavery to to be rejuvenated in the South, which uh, in turn led to the American Civil War. So it was a critical critical conflict, and uh, it, without uh, the, again, if Jackson had not been so so again so determined to prosecute this war to conclusion. Uh, with the British coming into the Gulf Coast region um, in the later latter part of 1814, uh, had the Creeks, the Red Sticks, I should say, been allowed to maintain their, their ground, um, uh, the whole course of the South, Southern history would have been changed. The British would have, would have united with the Red Sticks, and, and who knows what would have happened. And uh, where Alabama and Western Georgia, Mississippi, and for that matter, Florida, which was then a Spanish possession and only existed because of the Creek barrier to the Americans, uh, you know, where things would have stood uh, had Jackson not, uh, you know, insisted on on seeing this war through.
0: Well, it's an epic story, and Peter Cousins, the author of A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and The Epic War for the American South. I want to thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I think that you'll agree, after listening to our conversation with Peter Cousins, that the Creek War is one of the most tragic episodes in American history. It led to the greatest loss of Native American life on what is now U.S. soil. And what began as a vicious internal conflict among the Creek Indians metastasized like a cancer. The ensuing Creek War of 1813 to 1814 shattered Native American control of the Deep South and led to the infamous Trail of Tears, in which the government forcibly removed the Southeastern Indians from their homeland. The Creek War had a close relationship with the history of South Carolina.
1: Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment. Views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters.
0: New episodes of our podcast are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, as well as on the SCETV app. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, and Pandora. Walter Edgers Journal
1: is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. We'll talk again soon.